This is an ABC podcast. When we arrived, we were made to take all our clothes off. We had our hair shaven. And then we were doused in what they called it was a sheep dip, it was DDT. And once all that was done, you know, our clothes were all burnt. Uh, we were given a religion. You know, over time you, you forgot all Aboriginal ways and practices and you learn the white man's way, so that's who I thought I was. For Auntie Lorraine, healing from the trauma of being removed from her family as a child is an ongoing process. She's a survivor of the stolen generations, and hers is one experience among thousands. Today, there are an estimated 17,000 survivors, but the trauma of their experience doesn't just sit with them. Left unaddressed, it can pass on to subsequent generations. And mental health services aren't always up to the task of helping. A lack of culturally relevant services remains a major barrier to healing among many Aboriginal people. In our culture, our spirit is the very core of who we are, like our country, identity, language, everything. And in mainstream programs, they don't address it. This is where people like Auntie Lorraine have stepped in to fill the void. Hi, I'm Sana Kadar, and you're listening to All in the Mind. Today, reporter Anna Saleh delves into how healing programs, led by Indigenous communities themselves, are helping people confront and move past their trauma. It was grief on top of grief on top of grief, and I was grieving and mourning for everything that was lost, and it just came at me in this huge wave. Like, I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. I thought I was going insane. I just took to the bottle for a whole weekend. Auntie Lorraine Peters is a Wylan and Gamilaroi woman from Western New South Wales. She's now 81, but she's remembering a time in her 50s when things suddenly fell apart. It turns out she was going through deep trauma, and to understand it, we need to go back in time to when she was just four years old. She was living with her family on the Brewarina Mission in Outback New South Wales, This is the place her people had been herded into from their traditional lands. The government policy at the time was to remove children like her from their family, train them as domestic servants in institutional homes and assimilate them into white society. So in 1943, my five sisters and two brothers were all removed at once from um, family and community. The, the six of us girls were put in Cootamundra Domestic Training Home and my two brothers went to Kinchler Boys Home up the north coast of New South Wales. On arrival into Cootamundra Girls Home, it was a pretty scary event for somebody only four years old. When we arrived, we were made to take all our clothes off. We had our hair shaven. And then we were doused in what they called, it was a sheep dip, it was DDT. Mm. They call it delousing. And then um, once all that was done, you know, our clothes were all burnt. Uh, we were given a religion. 
some of us had our names changed, like the middle name becoming the first name, and um, we were given a job. Even my sister at two years old was given a job of picking up pegs. Um, that was hers and mine. We were, we were put in charge of the peg that dropped on the ground. For the next 14 years of my life there, we were brainwashed to act, speak, dress and think white and was punished if we didn't. We were not allowed to speak language, culture or even talk about family. As part of this effort to sever her family ties, even in the home, Auntie Lorraine was separated from most of her sisters. There were three dormitories. My younger sister and I stayed together, but we weren't allowed to bond with our older sisters. We were never allowed to even talk to them or go near them. And uh, as each sister left to be put out to work as a domestic, it was like, you know, um, the trauma... Uh, it was just compounded, you know, like with the grief and that of losing um, somebody again, you know. After she was released from the home, Auntie Lorraine went to Sydney where she met her husband. She later moved to Darwin and then to Queensland. And over the years, connection to her Aboriginal culture faded. There's two things they couldn't change was the colour of my skin and my spirit. But all the rest was just, I was assimilated. 100% into the community, you know. Over time, you you forgot all Aboriginal ways and practices and you learn the white man's way, so that's who I thought I was. I married 23, had a couple of kids, and um, it wasn't until I turned 54 years old that I triggered into trauma because I had nothing to compare it with. Auntie Lorraine was affected by a reunion for those Aboriginal people who'd been taken to the homes. They had a reunion for Kudamunda women and Kinchula boys at Blacktown in Sydney. And I had a huge tr- trigger there. It was massive and there was no turning back for me in my healing. That night, I think I triggered because there were so many girls that weren't there that I'd found out, you know, that, that had died or along the way and there wasn't too many of us there, really. And I think that was like, you know, why, why, why did these why did these women end up like that, you know? They died too young. Yes. Hmm. It was grief on top of grief on top of grief and I was grieving and mourning for everything that was lost and it just came at me in this huge wave, like, I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. I thought I was going insane. I just took to the um, to the bottle for a whole weekend, and my daughter's come down from Newcastle and said, um, you know, you're coming home with me. I had somebody to rescue me and pull me out of that hole. But can you imagine if somebody didn't have that support? I could have stayed there forever. There are thousands of stories like Auntie Lorraine's. A 1997 report from a Human Rights Commission inquiry documented the abuse, including sexual abuse, that occurred at places like the Kudamundu Girls' Home. In 2008, then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd gave a historic speech 
apologising to the stolen generations. We apologise for the hurt, the pain and suffering we the Parliament have caused you by the laws that previous Parliaments have enacted. We apologise for the indignity, the degradation and the humiliation these laws embodied. We offer this apology to the mothers, the fathers, the brothers, the sisters, the families and the communities whose lives were ripped apart by the actions of successive governments under successive parliaments. But as momentous as this was, it was just a step in a long journey of healing and reconciliation. Auntie Lorraine went on to develop a program aimed at healing the trauma of experiences like hers. She says Indigenous people have too often been let down by the Western mental health care system, which tends to focus on symptoms rather than causes. It's the assessment. It's my behaviour of triggering, drinking, acting that out, getting abusive and all that, taken down to hospital or wherever, police or being assessed for my behaviour, not for what I'm feeling, right? Not for my story. They're not interested in that. You know, you often hear, yes, we know it started with colonisation, but we're dealing with the fact that you've got an addiction now. Indigenous psychologist Kelly Ryan specialises in trauma healing, combining Western and Indigenous knowledge systems. I'm a descendant of the Kabi Kabi people of southeast Queensland and also a descendant of ASI, so Australian South Sea Islanders. We know a lot of the symptoms that we treat and that we're funded to treat are not the problem. They're merely the symptoms of the problem. So if I come to you and I have um, addiction issues, then addictions don't operate in isolation. We know that addictions are actually normally the the coping behaviour of deep pain, of usually trauma. And so I can teach you all sorts of cognitive and behavioural um, skills to manage that addiction, but if I don't heal the pain, now that pain will come out some other way, you know. It doesn't just go away because I teach you how to catch your negative thoughts or I teach you how to, you know, breathe deeply and move away from the stimuli that's causing you distress. If you're still going home every night and your family's in chaos or, you know, you go back to work and your racism is palpable, then that is not going to help. She says for a long time, Indigenous mental health services have suffered from a lack of cultural sensitivity. Early in the piece, the tests that were made to support what was normal or abnormal did not take into account any Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. They weren't made for us. What that means is that a lot of the tests that are used to determine what type of illness you have, as in mental health illness, the severity, the symptoms and how you would attend to those, don't actually work for us because they're not our norm, not based on our knowledge system. And so often they miss the mark and can cause more harm. For example, Western approaches can misunderstand Indigenous grief processes, which for some can include seeing or hearing spirits of deceased aunties and uncles. So if that person is actually in a grieving process and that's quite normal, then treating them like they have psychosis or, or schizophrenia will further harm them. Um, and in that system, in the mainstream medical system, especially mental health system, we disempower people because we believe that they're not in control of their own faculties and therefore we have to control them. 
Over the years, this lack of cultural sensitivity has led to a mistrust of mainstream services. The people who did this work were psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, social workers, and not necessarily culturally safe and usually not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, so not even from the same knowledge system, not even with that same cultural understanding of what is normal or not normal, or the history. Kelly says services that are aware of intergenerational trauma and culture take a more understanding approach. And they will wrap around and hold you safe, which is very different to controlling you and fixing you. In 2016, the Australian Psychological Society offered its own apology to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, vowing to listen more to them in the future, collaborate more and follow more. Meanwhile, Indigenous communities themselves have been taking the lead. After Auntie Lorraine's trauma was triggered, she was lucky enough to have seen a health professional who assured her that she was having a normal response to what she'd been through. This empowered her to start her own journey of healing. So I just started writing on my computer for three years solid. I sat there and wrote until I addressed every issue I was going through. A key part of her journey was reaching out to reconnect with her Aboriginal culture and she was encouraged to present her experiences to mental health professionals. 20 years ago, all this led to her developing the Maramali Program for Healing. Maramali is a Gamilaroi word meaning to put back together. For healing for Aboriginal people of the stolen generation groups and with every any Aboriginal person, the ultimate in, in healing is to be reconnected to everything that you've lost. And that's, that's, uh, that's a journey that individuals have to take like your identity's gone, so you've got to find out what, how, what is your true identity. Her pioneering Maramali program provides healing workshops both in the community and in prisons. These workshops use reflection and discussion to facilitate self-healing of trauma that goes through a seven-stage journey based on Auntie Lorraine's own experiences. In one of the early stages, for example, participants examine their grief and loss and its impact on their lives. And by the final stage, they reflect on where they've come from and how they can rebuild their future in a more positive way. The Maramali program also trains anyone who works with Indigenous people in how to provide culturally safe support. Auntie Lorraine says one step in the healing process is to understand how behaviour can be shaped by the legacy of trauma, which itself can pass through generations. Some participants don't understand why their parents may drink or become alcoholic like my brothers, my two brothers. They didn't know what was going on with them. So they drowned all their pain in drink, so their children would would not understand why he did that. But he he was suffering in pain um, from what he'd lost as an individual. So it's it's their legacy that they carry, and they don't know why they behave like they do. Hmm. But this is this underlying trauma that they 
they don't know they're carrying, and that's that that's that transferred trauma into the next generation, and so on. You know, down into the I think we're in our sixth in New South, or sixth or seventh. Auntie Lorraine emphasises the spiritual dimensions in her program as well. In our culture, our spirit is is the the very core of who we are, like our country, identity, everything, language, everything. Spirit is the core of all of that. Um, And in mainstream programs, they don't address it. They don't know what it is. We get misdiagnosed because of it, Um, because sometimes we we, we have the presence of spirits with us, even today, sitting in my dining room here, you know, I can feel my spirits around me. But given spirituality is specific to each Indigenous clan, there's a line she doesn't cross here. We only facilitate the stages. Everybody puts their own uh, journey into that workshop. They have to find their own spiritual journey because, you know, I think it's what we've got about 500 different clans in this country and I cannot and will not speak on behalf of any other clan but my own. The healing program involves the participants working in groups. The ultimate healing in, in an Aboriginal person is self-healing. When you get a group of people in like with collective healing, it's a yarning circle. That's when it happens. Like Everybody across from one another tell their story and it and um, we prompt different exercises, and hmm. uh, but we say, well, this is Jo, and she's having these issues. What would you do to help her? It all comes from them. We don't have any, give them any answers at all. And while you're doing that, they are unpacking their own journey, but they don't know it, some of them. In 2011, Auntie Lorraine was co-winner of an international award for services to psychotherapy, and now she helps advise the Healing Foundation, a government-funded organisation that supports the stolen generations and their communities. In fact, the Healing Foundation staff themselves have all done her program. Auntie Lorraine's initiative is just one of a number of programs that have emerged from Indigenous communities. While hers was based on personal experience, other programs are developed with experts like Kelly Ryan. There are an eclectic range of approaches. Our people are all on different journeys and things that influence that are how they were treated, how many children were taken from those communities, what massacres were there, who holds the power in those communities. You know, it's so complex. You know, everyone wants the quick fix, the one thing, the magic pill. It doesn't work like that. You know, even if it wasn't complex trauma, it still doesn't work like that. Every human being is different. Every family, every community, every history, every cultural history is different. Community-led healing makes sense for so many reasons. One is the community knows what the problem is. We can teach them skills to attend to the symptoms, but they know the problem and that's what they're moving to fix. One buzzword when it comes to healing programs is co-design. This means mainstream researchers and practitioners are given money to work with Indigenous communities to develop programs, using the best of Western and Indigenous knowledge. Kelly does just this sort of work. 
a lot of what we do is sharing knowledge about trauma. So understanding trauma so people can make different decisions for themselves. They can start to rebuild their identity as one that's not a deficit model. You know, we take our skills and our knowledge to a community that asks us to come, but they provide the cultural safety. They provide the cultural lens for which we can then translate our knowledge into something useful. Whether you ask back is a big indicator of whether you did your job well or not. But, says Kelly, for this to happen, people with the funding must take their lead from the community. So if you want to co-design, the person who has the funding has to actually be prepared to give up some of the power they have to say, we're going to fund this because we're looking for this outcome. You actually have to say to the group you're trying to service, we've got this funding and we'd like to improve this. What do you think is the problem? How do you think we should do this? Instead of saying, I've got this money, we want to um, combat the symptoms of what we think is the this problem. So how would we spend that? How would you as a community think the best way to spend that would be? So is it running men's groups? Is it actually giving the men somewhere to be so that they're not drinking, not getting violent, not being frustrated, you know, not having to act out their pain and sorrow in their community, you know? And that's not easy, especially if it's your funding and you also have KPIs to meet and you also have belief systems, you know. So it's hard, but the only way to make a difference is to co-design properly. International research on Indigenous healing programs suggests those that really work address local community issues, empower the community, they're locally led and understand the impact of colonisation and intergenerational trauma and grief. Like Auntie Lorraine's Maramali program, they tend to rely on group rather than one-on-one processes in healing. They draw on traditional healing practices and concepts of well-being and see community and cultural connectedness as key to all of it. But Kelly says this is often ignored by mainstream practitioners. Practitioners say, oh, you know, I need help. I've got this Aboriginal child and they're there are all these behaviours. And I say, well, who's their mob? And they go, well, they don't know their mob. You know, they've been taken away. They were taken at birth. And I go, no, who's their mob? And they go, well, it doesn't really apply to them. The whole Aboriginal culture thing doesn't apply because they don't know. Like, they were taken as a baby. And you go, yeah, well, somewhere their whole family structure, their whole mob is going, where is this child? Kelly says the worth of traditional healing practices also needs to be acknowledged. There are lots of cultural practices that have been in place and are really healing and we don't use them and we don't talk about them and they're definitely not mainstream practice. Um, Being on country, you know, something we've always spoken about, we can now, science can now say, oh, if you're barefoot on country for this many hours a week, it lowers your stress levels. All of these things have been cultural knowledge for forever, healing knowledge forever, you know. So there's this whole roundabout way of coming back to what was always cultural healing practices for many First Nations, not just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Is there general agreement about what best practice is in this space? No. No, that simple answer. Um, (laughs) Except that it needs to be evidence-based. But we don't talk about whose evidence. Whose evidence are we talking about here? Western knowledge evidence or are we talking about cultural? We're talking about social? We're talking about political? Whose evidence base are we talking about? And that really is up to the person who has the loudest voice and can lobby the loudest and who has the most power. 
People like Kelly say we also need more appropriate ways of evaluating the success of healing programs. The Western model counts bums on seats, um, output. How many people did you see? You know, did you do this training? How many people came in? You know, did you treat these symptoms? So if we're talking healing of complex trauma, it's not about counting output, it's about counting influence. So how do we influence the individual within the family that then influences the community, that then influences the collective community, the collective cultural identity? So you can see that if I'm measuring, if I'm funded to talk to five people to teach them these things, I can I can meet my criteria, my evaluation criteria, which is I saw five people, I spent this much time, I taught them this. Great. Yeah, that looks great. Why didn't it change anything? Because to really know what happened, you would have to know, did they share that knowledge with someone? Did they share that knowledge to something? They, were they able to make a difference with that knowledge? Getting evaluation right is necessary if we want to make sure the taxpayer's dollar is being spent on the most effective programs. So how we do our evaluation is we train at the end of the day, we evaluate. We see what's been useful, what's not been useful, how it can be used, what they need to know more of or less of, and we we change. And then we deliver again the next day and then we reevaluate again. And then we come back and go, so who did you tell and who did you tell and how did that help? And there's another challenge. The short-term nature of funding for programs to help deal with Indigenous trauma also stifles their success. Trauma is not a quick fix and you know, just like a trauma memory doesn't work in a linear fashion, neither does healing. You know, and often you'll come back before you go forward. A lot of our programs are funded for one year. Mm. You know, if you're talking about someone who experiences complex trauma or even simple trauma, they are not going to build a relationship with you in six sessions, in 12 sessions, you know, particularly when you're talking generational, intergenerational trauma, systemic trauma, say we're talking someone from the stolen gen, why would they trust you? Like seriously, why would you trust someone? You have to build that relationship and to build that relationship you have to be reliable, you have to be culturally aware, you have to be safe, you have to be able to cope with proving yourself to be reliable and being safe and only then when you're trusted can they actually trust you to support them? How best to evaluate healing programs is an evolving space. But meanwhile, the Maramali program reports it's just had a new review that's given it a big tick. And Auntie Lorraine's not wasting any time getting on with her mission. I'm hungry to help others. Like, it drives me to help people. Even my age, I should be retired by now, but my um, passion is too great. I need to heal as many of my mob as possible. What I would like to see is our children or my grandchildren have a voice to become part of the solution to break the cycle of trauma. That stolen generation survivor, Auntie Lorraine Peters, ending that story by reporter Anna Soleil. 
If you'd like more information on Auntie Lorraine's Marumali program, we'll have a link on our website to that and other relevant services. Thanks to producer Diane Dean and sound engineer Tim Jenkins. I'm Sana Kadar. You've been listening to All in the Mind. Thanks for your company. Catch you next time. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.